Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, Greetings this Lord's Day, people of God, in the name of Jesus. Isn't it a marvelous and amazing thing that God, in His mercy, looked down from heaven and He said, You know what? I want Jonathan Narwhal to follow me. Isn't that an amazing thing? That He looked not only at us, and the way I grew up, it was always He looked at us and he kind of liked what we were doing. And, but the Bible says that he did this according to foreknowledge. And when people, when, when you read that, you think, well, what could that possibly mean? And they, they look at it one way. I look at it another. You know, God knew all of the horrible things you were going to do all the way till the time you died, Tim. He knew all of that. And in spite of all that, guess what he did? He picked you. Isn't that a wonderful and amazing thing? That song that we sing, you know, how sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. It should always remind us of the fact that we could be out doing something else today. We could be not thinking of God. We could not be wanting to read His Word, to know Him, to be a part of the community of faith. We could want that. That's what we could want. But instead, God has called us to be a part of His people. Can we say thanks be to God? Psalm 4, David says this. He said, Oh Lord, he said, Hear me when I call. O oh God of my righteousness, thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O oh, ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? But know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto Him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of Thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time when their corn and their wine increased, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, makest me to dwell in safety. It's God who works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have given us good thoughts to think, that you have given us the desire to obey you. Lord, that you have given us a love for your word and your commands, O Lord. Lord, we stand in awe of that as David did then. Lord, as we go to bed each night thinking of how good you are, Lord, we often sing upon our bed of your goodness. Thank you for giving us that song, O Lord, and for filling us with your spirit 
Lord, you washed us with your blood and you've forgiven our sins and made us acceptable in your sight. Thank you for doing that, Lord. Lord, we realize that if you had not done that in us, we would still be astray from you and seeking our own and finding nothing but misery. But Lord, you have given us life. Lord, we come to you today asking you to feed us from heaven, and we know that you will. Please change us by the words that are spoken here today. Draw us near through your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, and all the church said, Amen. Amen. Please remain standing for just a few more moments as I read for you my text from John chapter 17, verses 6 through 10. My sermon today is called Election Chosen by the Father. Election Chosen by the Father. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 10. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gave me out of the world. They were thine. And thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known all things, whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gave me, and they have received them. And they have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which... Thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Let us pray. Lord, as the ministry of the word goes forth, I pray that your spirit would illuminate your word. Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit and that it would pour out of me into the people that are gathered here today, Lord, that they would hear your word and be changed by it, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as I was sitting here, I actually got a sermon, a pre-sermon sermon. You guys want to hear the pre-sermon sermon? You know, growing up, there were some doctrines that were taught in our church, Andy, that you had to uh, know Greek and Hebrew and turn the Bible sideways and stand on one foot and know a specialist, and then you could see it. You, has anybody ever heard people ever try to teach you something like that? you got to look into it. you got to know. Okay, this doctrine of election is not a doctrine like that. This is a central core to the Bible which is taught from its very first pages all the way to the end. And to not see this doctrine as one that is blatantly taught in Scripture, I believe is to be willingly ignorant of what God's Word says. Now, I know that's pretty hard words, but it is. 
Guys, from the very beginning, uh, when man went wrong, how did God preserve the world from the flood? What did He do? He chose a guy named Noah. Was Noah uh, praying each week and saying, Lord, you know, save me and, 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 I, and let me save the world from this d- destruction? He didn't know it was coming, right? God looked and He saw Noah and He picked Noah. Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees and God said to him what? Get up and get out and go somewhere else. Abraham was chosen by God, right? As you go through the scripture, you will see that even Saul, who was the first king of Israel, was ungodly. But how did he become the first king of Israel? He was chosen by God. He picked him out. He didn't even want to be the king, but he was chosen by God. And then when God was going to choose a king after his own heart, how did this happen? Was there a contest? Did people say they wanted to be king? Did he pick the most important person who had worked hard and been trained in how to be a king? Or did he go out to the house of a man named Jesse who had several sons and choose, everybody say choose, choose the least likely man among his family to be king? What did he do? He chose it. When God called Samuel the greatest to me, prophet, the cleanest living, godliest prophet of the Old Testament, how did it happen? He was in bed, and God spoke to him. And he said, Samuel. And he said, what? He said, he comes in, Eli, did you call? No. And he goes back in bed. Samuel. So what happens? God chooses who? He chose Samuel. Over and over throughout Scripture, you see one after the other after the other. And even in the New Testament, when Jesus is finding disciples, how does he find them? He walks up to them and he says, follow me. Does he not? He looks at this person and says, drop your nets, follow me. Right? Each time, it's what he does. God chooses. John the Baptist was chosen in the womb of his mother. He's in the womb of his mother, leaping, and it's being prophesied who he will be. He, they don't, he hadn't done anything to prove worthy of being a great prophet. He was chosen. Even the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, he was in the middle of killing Christians, hauling them out of their houses, getting court documents against them, having them killed, and God does what? He smacks him down to the ground, blinds him, and calls him and chooses him. Paul puts it this way, though. This is what's amazing to me in Galatians chapter 1. Paul said, God who is full of mercy, he said, he separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. Paul said before he was even born, Luke, God separated him from his mother's womb to do this work. Is this a sideline doctrine of the Bible or is this a major doctrine of the Bible? And if I were going to be tongue in cheek and I wanted to make you laugh a little bit, I would have called my sermon today, Jesus was a Calvinist, okay? But I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say Jesus was a Calvinist. That wouldn't, I wouldn't really want to say that. Calvin would not have wanted me to say that. But Jesus believed this and so As we continue looking at the prayer of Jesus here in John 17, kind of a series within a series about prayer, election, unity, and the deity of Christ himself, that's what this prayer is all about. This prayer occurred and was recorded by John after he took part in the Last Supper. He had washed the disciples' feet. He had showed them how to lead in the kingdom through servanthood. They were going to be servants. They were going to lead with love and humility. The world was going to hate them like they had hated Jesus. No matter what good they did or truth spoken to these dark hearts, these blind guides were incapable of being reached. They were given to the world as an example of the total depravity of man. Man without God's transforming hand, raising them up, does not, everybody say does not, and will not, say will not, seek after God. If God hadn't touched you, you wouldn't seek Him. If he hadn't given you ears to hear, you couldn't hear him. If he didn't give you eyes to see, you can't see him. Dead people are dead. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't change, and they cannot repent. Only when you're given life by God are you able to do 
these things. Now this may sound hopeless because it is. That's why it sounds hopeless. Because it is hopeless. Mankind has needed a Savior because he cannot save himself. Even if he knew every rule, every law, even if God spoke to them and told them the future, did special things for them, incredible miracles, that still wouldn't be enough. We have proof of that, right? That's what he did with the children of Israel. He did all these things for them. He continued to do them. That's the whole story of the Old Testament. No matter what God does for people, no matter what he tells them, they still can't hear it. They still can't see it. Man himself is dead to God. No matter what he is told, taught, or done for, he is a sinner, and as a sinner, he cannot please God. Everything born of man is like this, born after the flesh, and he will be just like him. Only those born of God in the new birth can see the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is? That which is born of flesh is? Flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is? Spirit. This shouldn't make us marvel. This is the way it is. In order to live, men must be born again. So this week we're going to talk about election. Simply put, election is the doctrine that God actively saves certain people. Man cannot save himself by doing good deeds. In his current state, dead to sin, even his good deeds are evil. Now this is, this is partly where this starts to become difficult for us. We don't like this part. Do you know that the good deeds that evil men do, God hates them. You might go, oh, well, that's a good guy. Well, God, God's not really thrilled with man's goodness. Man's goodness on the surface might look good, but it's evil. Even his prayers are. Did you know God says he hates the prayers and he does not listen to the prayers of the wicked? And you might go, well, that's not fair. That's not right. It says it right in the Bible. If you want to take notes, Proverbs 15, 29. Proverbs 28, 9, John 9, 31, 1 Peter 3, 12, as well as James 1 and James 5. God doesn't hear the prayer of the ungodly. Now, we don't like this doctrine. Our sinful flesh cries out, that's not fair. It rails against the doctrine. When, when we rail against God as we forget who determines the fairness and goodness standard, Right? We don't like it. I mean, come on. If you, if you want to admit it, as a human being, you do not like this. I don't like it. I kind of like to think that, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe God looked at me and I was really, I was, you know, I wasn't perfect, but I mean, he really, he liked me. He saw that I liked him too, kind of like my grandpa. You know, I like my grandpa, my grandpa, he likes me, you know, and, 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 and he likes me because, you know, I'm a good kid. Like, there's something in us that really, really, really goes for that. But it's not true at all. It's not true at all. When we forget who determines fairness and goodness, we ask ourselves, is it us? Do we determine what's fair? Is it you? Do you, do you determine what's fair, what's good, what's right, what's just? Nope. The Apostle Paul lays this out. Andy read it for us in Romans 9. I, I kind of like what he said. He said, you know, if you start with Romans 9, you know, you can end the discussion quicker. It's so plainly laid out in Romans chapter 9, it's not ambiguous. It's not like, you know, half of one verse might maybe mean this in certain translation. No, he tells an entire narrative here in Romans 9. Romans 9, 11, it says that the children, we're talking about Jacob and Esau, they hadn't even been born yet. Right? They haven't even lived long enough to have done anything right or anything wrong. Yet, okay, it says that the purpose of God according to election, that's our topic today, everybody say election. It's a biblical term. So, so Paul says that when Jacob and Esau, before they were born, having done good or bad, God chooses one of them because God's purpose according to election might stand not of works, but him that calls. Do you hear that? This is why we call it this doctrine, the doctrine of election, because that's what the Apostle Paul called it. Jacob and Esau hadn't been born yet, yet it is because it says this cannot be about people. God's story is not about great people. It's about a great, it's about a great God. 
And so he says, it is not of him that does these things, it's, but it's, the, it's of he who calls. Who calls? God calls. It's about, this is a story about God. It's not a story about you. Now we'd like it. Wouldn't we like it if the whole story of all of mankind all centered around on us? You know, isn't that what they do in all of these movies that people live vicariously through? The whole world all depends. And then there's this kid and he's got special gifts and talents and he saves the whole wide world, right? We like stories of superheroes. Andy, you may have put me up on charges this week. This is, I'm joking, so you can smile. Everybody smile. At the 4th of July picnic, someone threw me a t-shirt, which I did wear later on, just for fun. But on it, it said, Jesus is my superhero. Okay? Now, uh, we won't get into the theology of all of that, but we like the idea of superheroes, right? I, I wore it in my house, and then I actually, my kids made me take it off. And it, it was from the church I grew up in. That's what they're teaching over there. Jesus is my superhero at the Vacation Bible School. But we don't just like Jesus to be the superhero. We want to be the superhero, right? We want to be the one who preaches it. And we want to be the one to bring the miracle. And we want to be the one who did something good. We want to be the hero of a story that has one hero. And it's Christ. Romans 9 says, The elder shall serve the younger. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? He asks the question. You know, Paul was good at this, anticipating the objection. You're reading what he's writing, and he goes, you might say to yourself this thing, right? Paul lays out the doctrine of election here. He anticipates the problem that we have with it. If God determines things like this, then, then why does God make people, does he make people sin? Why does he punish people who do wrong if he determined they would be wrong? And he says, when you say that, you are judging God. We're not to judge what God does, right? The Bible says God does not make anybody sin. That people sin because they want to sin. And that's what they do. Alright? He asked the question, is there unrighteousness with God? God does not make men sin. Okay? He, he uh, everything God does is good and just. But we may not understand it, but it's so. Verse 15, he says to Moses... And when he says this, we don't like this either, but he says it. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, that part we actually kind of like, you know. God's going to have mercy and he's going to have compassion. Isn't that going to be great? Right? Because we just assume maybe God wants to have mercy on everybody. I mean, isn't that what we really want to think? Then God is out and he wants to have mercy on everybody and have compassion on everybody. And we really like verse 15 because we think that's what he's saying but what God is saying is if I want to have mercy on someone I will regardless of what they think about it and if I want to have compassion on someone I will regardless of what they think about it regardless of what you think about it I mean I was talking to Andy's kids a while back and I'm like so why was David a man after God's own heart and Saul wasn't when David was a murdering adulterating man and Saul was not why did God call Paul, who was killing Christians, and make him Paul the Apostle? Don't you think there was a good living kid out there somewhere who hadn't killed Christians that maybe God could have called? Maybe. But God didn't do that, did He? He went right to a guy who literally stood by and watched Stephen get hit in the head with rocks, covered in it, this man of God who was displaying the love of Christ forgiving them while they were killing him and Paul stood by and I think he loved every minute of it and you go oh that's horrible no he did because he goes from chapter 7 at the end where they kill Stephen to the beginning of chapter 8 and it says in verse 1 that, that Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the church got letters from the high priest and was ripping men and women out of their homes and committing them to prison and ultimately they were executed. Guys, 
you don't really get much worse than this. Could you imagine a guy who went around, let's say our government was in a state where we had to be in secret Christianity, and there was a guy who worked for him, and he's throwing people in jail and getting them killed. What we'd want to do is string him up, right? And God says, you know what I'm going to do with this guy? I'm going to make him the greatest apostle. See, God doesn't do things the way we do. He doesn't think like we do. Now, we don't understand them, but the people that God chooses, we would not choose. You wouldn't choose David to be the man after God's own heart if you knew he was going to do what he did, right? You'd say, well, he's disqualified. He can't be there. But yet God holds him up in this high place, and from him is descendant, is Christ himself. This should be very puzzling. Now, we're very comfortable with David, and we think of him as, as, as a great guy, but he was not a great guy. He was a great sinner who had a great God. And that's what you are. Great sinners. We don't like this. We like to think that God uh, picks some pretty, pretty good guys, and then he helps them a little. This is not how it works. He picks whoever he wants to do whatever he wants, and he does it for his own purpose. Once again, our sinful flesh does not like this, but when we read the words, we have to say, I believe them or I don't. God has compassion on whomever he wants to have compassion. It's all up to him. Verse 16, so that it's not of him that wills, not of him that runs, but it is of God who shows mercy. I call this big God theology. We should all have this big God theology because Paul had it, and it's all throughout Scripture. It's not about the man. It's not about his work. It's about his God. Everything should go back to God. We should always be looking to God for praise, for glory, for credit in every single thing. But many doctrines point at man, and those doctrines we know are wrong. The reason is given here should make us more sense to us. If a man can save himself, he can take credit for doing it. If he can do it by his own strength, then he can get the glory. God gets all the glory and the credit and not man. For emphasis and clarification, Paul continues with the example of a sinner. And this is where we this is where we have more problems, Abby. We don't like this one really at all. We say, okay, God having compassion, that's great. But the next one it says, but then he gives us Pharaoh as an example. Now, if this is not hard for you, you're just not listening. Verse 17, the scripture said to Pharaoh, even for this purpose, I raised you up. Pharaoh was raised up to be the nasty, belligerent, blasphemous, prideful leader that he was in Egypt because God put him there. If you want to get some hardcore big God theology and sovereignty of God, read the prophets. He'll say, Amalekites, I raised them up. I raised them up basically in the bassinet of my providence so that they would come and bring judgment on you, O people of God. I mean, over and over through the Old Testament, God is explaining that the work of raising up the enemies of God, God is doing that work too. This is very difficult. Verse 17, For the scripture says, Pharaoh, even for this purpose I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardens. This is rough. God hardens people? I mean, maybe God hardened Hitler. Of course he did. Nobody could be that bad on their own. But the hearts of men, we will find out, are dark like this. This is He didn't harden Pharaoh to do something Pharaoh didn't want to do. He gave him courage to do what the heart of every man would do. What man would do is he would build a tower to God and reach up and pull God down. That's what man wants to do. And Hitler, God just let him do all that he wanted to do, and he did it. And you go, well, that's just horrible. That's what God's Word is teaching here. He hardens who he wants to harden. Was there anyone, you know, if, in history, everybody always points to where? To Hitler. And God's pointing to Pharaoh, which was... I'm sure equally as hard. Who could watch miracle after miracle take place of the plagues and then turn his eye and go, oh yeah, no problem. We're going to defy God. What kind of pride would that take, Steve? Someone turns the water into blood. Someone makes it rain frogs. Somebody, you know, plagues all the cattle. Someone did all this and, and you're just going, 
I'm not afraid of you. I mean, that's some serious braveness. It's painful, but we either believe it or we don't. And I do believe it, and I know that God must be good, and he must understand what's best for all of us. Verse 19 of Romans says, Thou wilt say, Why does he yet find fault? Who can resist his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast you made me this way? Some people have difficulty with, with saying, Oh, God doesn't, you know, people are not made the way they are. They, they, there's something they're, they're lying about. No, there are people that are wretched and ungodly and they're sinful and that's just the way they're going to be. They're not making excuses. The reason they hate, the reason they kill, the reason they do all these things is because that is who they are made to be. Now, can God save any one of them? He certainly can. My wife's been reading about a woman named Rosario Butterfield. Is that her name? She was a militant feminist lesbian. And you know what she is now? She's a homeschool mother of several children and a devoted wife. How did this happen? It happened by the mercy and grace of God. He calls a woman out of darkness and brings her into where? His marvelous light. And you might go, well, she's done a lot of bad things. I wouldn't trust her. And she's lived a nasty life. That's what they said about the woman at the feet of Jesus. If you knew what kind of woman she was, you wouldn't let her touch you. But you see, God knows just exactly what you are. And He allows you. Amen? God's not daunted by your sinfulness. He's not put off by how bad you are. He knows how bad you are. And He loves you. And He's going to save you anyway. Can't we say thanks be to God? Oh, I haven't even gotten started. I'm on page 6 of 22. Guys, what in the world are we going to do? Wow. This doctrine should never be a source of pride. It should be a source of awe and humility. Every, each and every one of us could have been among those who never sought after God who would rush headlong to hell, but we're not. Can we say thanks be to God? Now, I'm not saying I fully understand the doctrine, but it seems quite clear that the Bible teaches it. In fact, if it doesn't, there's a whole lot in the Bible that doesn't make sense at all. So if you're ever having this conversation with somebody, don't be prideful about it. Just go, well, why don't we just... They'll go, are you willing to have a discussion? And generally what they'll do is they'll grab one verse. And I'm telling you, if you go, hey, instead of this one verse, could we read like three chapters? This is where their trouble will happen for them. You don't have to argue with anybody. Be humble and be sweet and be kind and say, hey, you're reading a verse, but could we read like the three chapters before it together? This is when their boat will begin to sink and they will be in a lot of trouble because the Bible teaches this over and over and over and over in every parable and story and illustration over and over. It is replete in Scripture. Now, I'm going to... Uh, wow. Alright, I'm going I'm to go through a couple of these, alright? Luke 10. Do you guys remember Jesus appointing the 70? Do you guys remember that? He sends them out. And this may not bother you, but it might not bother you because you don't believe... You think you're reading a storybook and not reading a real life book, Okay? So the Lord appointed 70 and he sent them before the face into every city where he was going to go, right? This is Luke chapter 10 if you want to read about it later. And he tells them this verse, which we love. This is a bumper sticker verse, right? The, the, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. Now, when you're harvesting, you're going out to get something that's already grown, right? You don't harvest seeds. Well, I mean, I guess you could, but... They, they wouldn't come, they, they don't, you don't harvest seeds out of the ground. You harvest seeds off of the top of mature plants even, right? So he's sending them out to harvest. So he's sending them out to go, not to go planting, but to go harvesting, right? So they're going out. So where they're going, they're going to people that are already ripe and ready for picking. So what's that mean? They're already what? They're already God's people, right? Now he says, behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves... 
Right? So he's sending them, there are lambs and wolves. You kind of think, well, no, everybody's lambs, just, we just need to kind of get them in the right corral. No, I'm sending out his lambs among wolves. There's this antithesis here, right? Now he tells them, don't carry a purse or a script. Don't even take extra shoes. Now, don't even salute people, by the way. In whatsoever house you enter, say, peace be to the house. And if the son of peace is there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, turn Again, now, I have question marks going all the way across the page because this is very confusing, all right? What is going on here? Something obviously supernatural is happening. There are some houses they should be looking for and other houses not. Kind of, this is almost like you, Steve, with your, your water witching thing or whatever you want to call it. You get the, you get the, the stick and you walk and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, 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 and then, you know, and it's like, oh, there's water here. It's not there. It's not there. It's right here and so this is kind of what's going on here some houses go to some houses another now I thought I grew up we go to all the houses we knock on every door we talk to everybody because we're kind of playing a numbers game like so many we, we can talk some into it and others we can't when I started a church that's what we did we'd go to every door uh, many times we would wear them down with love we would sell them do whatever was necessary that's what I was taught Jesus though he says to his disciples, do not do this. Do you know when I stopped doing this, Paul? I stopped doing this when I read that Jesus said, don't do this. I was like, whoa. I was looking into guidance on how to do this. Now, I'm not trying to say that, you know, uh, this is some formula. You know, when you go, you have to leave your wallet at home. Uh, when you're walking down the street, you can't say hi to anybody. That's not what I'm saying. But there's something here to learn, Okay. Verse 7, go to that house. When you find a house that, that his peace is already there, go and eat whatever food they give you. Go not from house to house. Wow. I had been going door to door for my entire life. In fact, Andrew and I went on these things called strike forces where we would map out entire little towns with a whole group of people and we'd knock on every door in the entire city with a whole group of people. And it was a lot of fun. Now what got my attention though was that Jesus was sending them out. Some people would receive them and some would not. This part hit me the hardest that comes next. You ready for this? He says, in whatsoever city you enter, if they receive you, eat such things that are set before you, heal the sick that are therein, say unto them, the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Now that's great, right? You go preaching, they accept you, they feed you, you're teaching them, tell them the kingdom of God's come. This is happy news, right? But whatsoever that you go and they don't receive you, even the dust of the city which cleaves to you, wipe it off. Notwithstanding, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God came near, but they didn't get it. They didn't receive it. I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazon. Woe to thee, Bethesda. For if the mighty works done in, were done in Tyre and Sidon, that were done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than you. Now, you guys know Tyre and Sidon got completely wiped off the face of the earth. Every rock, even the dust from the city was gathered up and thrown into the sea. Do you guys remember this? He's telling these people that they went to their door, and when they answered their door, they weren't interested that these people were worse than Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon, and that the very dust that touches their feet, they should knock it off. Now, if, if there's something that's now bothering you, you about this, you're just not thinking about it. Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, you be thrust to hell. He that heareth you, heareth me. He that despiseth you, despiseth me. He that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. So, Steve, I started thinking about this. I'm like, is Jesus really saying that the first person they have to meet is a knucklehead in a town that the whole town is going to go to hell? I mean, could you imagine? Can you imagine people you know being the first person? A stranger walks up to your town and you're like, we ain't buying any of that, and slams the door and says leave. So now, because that knucklehead happened to be at the gate, the whole city is going to hell. Does that sound like the God you serve, or does that sound just crazy? It kind of sounds crazy to me.
It sounds like that if you came to the house and the water was boiling over in the other room and the woman had to go fix it and she wasn't nice at the front door, then that family, they got to go to hell too. That doesn't sound very nice. That doesn't sound merciful. That doesn't sound loving at all. That sounds weird. Okay? They had to pay the ultimate price because the mood of the city gatekeeper or the mother or father that came to the door, their personal circumstances were conduce, conducive to a visit that day. This guy looks like a knife salesman. Uh, uh, give him the brush off, honey. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to put dinner on the table right now. Uh, whatever they're selling, send them away. And those people get to go to hell. Really? God would judge people to eternity based on that. Everybody say, absolutely not. Luke 20 says, gives us a hint of what's going on at the end of the story. You guys remember what happens at the end of this? They come back, they go, and they do just what he says. And they come back, and they rejoice. They say, do you know what? He says, even the devils are subject unto us. We're, we're doing miracles, and even the devils are subject unto us. And what does he say to them? Don't rejoice about that. Rejoice that what? Your names are written in the book of life. He's trying to explain to them that some people are God's people and some people aren't. They weren't going out to try to convince people. They were going out to find the people that God had already touched and already changed who were already ready, who God had foreordained because they would be ready at the door. Not because their life circumstances had made them ready, but because God had prepared them to answer the door and say, Come on in! Their names were written in heaven. They were going to heaven. This was true cause for celebration. Now there's something else that somebody asked me one time, and I want you to lodge this in your mind. Because no one had ever asked this question, and if no one's ever asked you this question and you haven't ever thought about it, you should ask it. You ready for the question? Could Jesus have lived on the earth, died on the cross, risen from the dead, and no one received him? Now, if you believe that it's all about what man does, the answer to that question is what? Yeah. Christianity could have died with Jesus right then. He could have done all that, but, but maybe no one would have been convinced. And maybe no one would have followed him. And maybe no one would have received him. And then the work of God would have been what? Would have been a, would have been a failure. Are we rejoicing today that some did receive him? And as a result, Christianity thrives today? Or is there really... Maybe that's really not a good way of looking at it. Did God send Jesus for the chance that maybe some people might get saved, but maybe not? I don't think the Bible teaches any such insanity. You guys follow what I'm saying? Is there a chance? If we believe it's about the people, if we believe it's about what people believe and who receives, then what if nobody did? That would have been the end of it all. Now, I hadn't thought of that before. Those who don't believe in election, they must answer yes. It is very possible that it is possible now. Not likely because God did, God did such a really good thing. So he put a, the very best cell that could be. And so it was likely that some people were going to. But not, it wasn't for sure thing. Now we don't have to go into it all today. But suffice it to say that God's plan for salvation for man was not a gamble. There was no chance that God would or could fail. Chance has nothing to do with it. Jesus did not die for a chance to save mankind. Jesus said he was coming to build the church, right? And he said that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He said that he was coming and he wasn't dying for the chance, but he was dying for the bride. His elect. Now some argue that God can say things like every knee shall bow and every tongue confess because... He can look into the future and see what will happen. It doesn't take a super genius to see the faulty logic in this. But people continue to believe it because they want to believe. They have more to do with their salvation.
Holy mackerel. Can you stay with me for just a few more minutes? I always forget that I'm going to preach. Like, I think I'm just going to read this to you, okay? And so that I get excited and I get to preaching. Everybody say, whosoever will. Perhaps everybody knows the most quoted Bible verse of all the Bible. that They put it on signs at football games. They hold it up, right? What is it? John 3.16. In John 3.16, here's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, you have to remember, there's two things. God so loved the world, okay, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, say whosoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, the first time somebody tried to explain election to me, I said, well, what about that passage? It says whosoever, right there, big as Dallas. That's when you go, well... Why don't we read all, why don't we read John chapter 1 and John chapter 2 and John chapter 3 and see if we still think that's what it's saying. And this is where you get in trouble if you're an Arminian. Because when you start reading from chapter 1, things go bad for you right off the very, very beginning when you realize what John has already said. You know, when you're reading a letter that someone uh, has written to you and you're in chapter 3 of the letter, it's important to look at chapter 1, Right? Right? So the word whosoever has been used to say that whosoever can and will or wants to be can be saved. It's where I started in my mind when I started considering the doctrine of an election if it was biblical. Part of my problem was that I had fallen prey to some bad logic when it comes to understanding the Bible. It kind of goes like this. Uh, if it's right, is it right or is it wrong to drink alcohol? Kind of a question, right? So I'm looking for a yes or no answer, not really considering that there might be a third answer. You know, someone will say to someone, you know, you know, have you stopped stealing from the grocery store? This is a bad question, right? What if you've never stolen from the grocery store ever, right? So you didn't stop because you never did it, right? You see how the question is bad? I never did it to the, in the beginning, but if your only answer is yes or no, if your answer is yes, that means that you used to do what? You used to steal from the grocery store, but now you stopped. If you say no, then they assume that you mean what? I still steal from the grocery store. So yes or no, the, the answer to the question is, I never stole from the grocery store ever. Okay, but they don't offer you that yes or no. Kind of like Christians who, who say drinking alcohol, right? Is it, is it sinful, you know, to do it or is it not? And so when you get these two questions, they'll say, well, let me show you a scripture that says that it, it is sinful. And, and then we'll say, and then someone says, well, let me show you one that says it's not. So then there's the battle of the scriptures. That, you know, is there 10 scriptures that say it, it is and, and 20 that say it's not? And so these 10 cancel out 10. And then, then it's, you know, how does it work? Faulty logic, okay? God's word never contradicts itself ever. And if, there, and if the answer isn't easy, maybe the answer is complicated, all right? Maybe there is a C or a D answer, not just the A or the B. If that's too hard, I'm sorry. The answer is obviously to drinking, it's not yes or no. The answer is more that there are times not to drink. There are ways not to drink. We don't drink too much. But it's sometimes God actually wants us to drink, uh, like when we take communion. And we're supposed to be responsible and all that. All right. Now, John 3.16, we clearly see what Jesus said here means to those that God who has chosen, those who uh, have been born again, they will believe on him and be saved. Okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him. He's saying that the people that believe on him are the ones that are being saved. Now, I'm telling you that's what it means, but we'll, we'll look at it from John 1. I'll try to go quickly through here. John chapter 1, you can read it from the very verse. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. As you go down... And you get to verse 10. It talks about Jesus was in the world. The world was made by him. They didn't know him. He came into his own and his own received him not. Now verse 12 is where it gets really painful for an Arminian. And for you, if you haven't really come to understand the doctrine of election. Verse 12. 
But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Verse 13. But the ones who are that, it says, which were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. So that's pretty rough on your case, right? Men are born again, but they're not born because of the, their personal will. They're not born because of their personal efforts in their flesh, but they're born because of God. That's kind of rough on the case of the chapter 3. John 3, in its context, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night, right? And he asked the question, how can a man enter into the kingdom of God, right? Jesus answered and says, Verily, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How many of you willed yourself to be born? Is Nora Wonga going to tell you, you know what, I was in there. I really, really wanted to be born. And so I prayed and I asked if, you know, the Lord could send something along here. And then I can't. No, no, you, she was just in there, right? And God brought her forth in his time. That's what being born is all about. So he says that you can't go to heaven unless you're born again. Because people need to be born again because they're what? They're dead in their trespasses and sins. He's not understanding. He asked again, he said, does a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? He's like, no, 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 you're not, you're not getting in here. Jesus said, except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and unless he's born again, he can't live. And this is a supernatural thing. He tells him this in Romans, or right here in, uh, right here before we get to, Roman, or, uh, John 3. In John 3, a few verses later, he's talking about salvation. He's explaining Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness and then believing and being saved. And he says, verse 15, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then if you keep reading just a few verses, he said, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is teaching here that the evidence of a person believing or not believing tells you whether they're born again or not. If they if they're not born again, they will not what? They're not going to believe. But if they do believe, it's because they have been what? They've been born again. He says this is the condemnation that light came into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds be reproved. Men who are dead and they're lost, they don't want to come to God. They don't want to come to church. They don't want to read the Bible. They don't want to do what is right. That's why when, Andy, when I heard that the man's reading the Bible, you go, whoa. Maybe he believed. Maybe God's touched him. Maybe he believes. Maybe Andy's going to get to see the salvation of his neighbor. Amen? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing if he sat in our pew and he got up and he said, You know what? This is what? I was blind and I was not seeking God. And God brought this uh, calamity into my life. And next thing you know, I'm considering, I'm reading the Bible, the Word of God. God sends a man over to my house. And all of a sudden now I believe. And then you know his name for the next 30 years. Wouldn't that be something? That would be fabulous. What a fab. How many of you have a story like that? A lot of us do. John 6, 44. No one can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draws him. Is that ambiguous? Nobody can come to God unless God draws him themselves. John 15, 16. We just preached through it. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Is, there, is that ambiguous? I've ordained that you should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. I know we've never even made it back to John 17. I'm sorry. I'm still not quite ready. I'm going to try to wrap it up here. I'll go to John 17. The words which... 
Jesus spake, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Isn't that a very particular thing? Not given him power to give everybody eternal life, but he says, the Father has given him power to give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which you gave me out of the world. They were thine they were. And thou gave them to me, and they have kept my word. As we read this prayer, he says, verse 9, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which you gave me, for they are thine. Can you see this doctrine that Jesus is talking about and praying in this way? All that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm going to close with Ephesians 1 that brings this doctrine out very clearly. Ephesians chapter 1 to me is the most powerful, most clear, most lovely exposition of this doctrine, most exciting. If you read the epistles, do you know the epistles aren't written to people that aren't Christians? They're written to Christian people. They all start off. Paul the Apostle and Timothy to the elect lady. Paul the Apostle to the church at Galatia, to the saints, right? These, these are letters written to Christian people. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, you want to put this on a bumper sticker? According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. God chose before the foundation of the world that we would live right, that we would do good, that we would serve Him. That should give you a lot of confidence today. You know, some weeks I don't do so good. How many, how many have weeks where you just, just don't do so good? Come on. And sometimes the devil wants to go, you know what, Naomi? You might not be among the crew, you know. You might not. And you know what I say to the devil? It's like, you know what? What I do doesn't have anything in the world to do with that. God loves me. He's chosen me. He's seated me in heavenly places in Christ. He's forgiven me of the sins that I will commit tomorrow and next week. I am preserved by God, not by my own strength. Or my own works. It ought to give you some confidence. See, the devil likes to go, Laura, you know, uh, you're, you're really blah, 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 blah. And go, that's right, and a whole lot more. According as he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. Aren't you glad we're going to heaven? Well, we ought to even be blamed for what we ought to be blamed for. I'm glad. God's people. Verse 5, if... Verse 4 wasn't clear enough. Having predestinated us. Predestination sounds like a made up term, but it's right here in the Bible. Having predestinated us according to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of whose will? Of His will. It's not our will. If it were up to us, it would never happen. The doctrine of election is called the doctrine of predestination because it's another way of saying that we were not only chosen by God, but it was our destiny from the very beginning of our lives. What does that verse say that we were predestined or predetermined for? The foundation of the world what went unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will. Remember John's words from John chapter 1. Man was born what? Not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. In James 1.18 it says... Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature. How were we begotten of God? By his will, not our own. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Folks, I'm telling you what. 
You know, I didn't get picked for kickball, you know. I haven't been chosen for a whole lot, but I've been chosen to sit in heavenly places in Christ. I've been chosen to be a part of the greatest, most wonderful band of things in the world to conquer the earth, to throw the devil out of territory that he thinks he owns. Man, that's exciting stuff to me. I got picked for the team, and I'm on it, praise God. This, this is for God's glory and no man's. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Not according to how good we can figure it out and how good we can lay it down. Wherein He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation and the fullness of time He might gather together in one all things in Christ which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in Him. And then just in case you were starting to backslide, verse 11, he brings it out again. He says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Are, are, you, are you beat up with the doctrine of election so bad that the devil can't knock you off of your horse and make you feel uh, unworthy and un... You know, maybe I'm not in... No! No, he's a liar. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. I'm not quite done. You guys, you guys, stay with me just for a couple more minutes, okay? You're feeling discouraged. You're questioning your salvation. You should read chapter 1. And don't stop at chapter 1 in Ephesians. Go to chapter 2. In whom also you trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that you believed, you were sealed. I love that. I love that, Andy. We're sealed. It's done. What do you do with a letter when you're done with it? You seal it. What do you do with something in the, and you're going to certify it? You seal it. You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of His glory. And the Ephesians were feeling a little, right? They were feeling a little backslidden, all right? So he reminds them, he says, You has God raised from the dead. He's quickened you. I love that word, quickened. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were once dead, but you're what? You've been quickened. In time past, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works, and the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. He's saying you were born that way, you lived that way because that's who you were, but there came a day when God changed every bit of that, and God who was rich in His mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, He brought us out of that, amen? He said, even when we were dead, verse 5, He's quickened us together with Christ, by grace you're saved. He's raised us together. He's made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ. That in the ages to come, He might show His exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness to us. Guys, all of the kindness bestowed on you and me will bring glory to God. He will say, look at the Luke Downey. Look how he lived. Look how he did not love me. He did not seek after me. But God loved him anyway. Look at the sins that he committed. Do you know the sins that you commit, Luke? And I'm not trying to tell you to commit the more of them. But the sins you commit, they are going to be for the glory of God. They'll say, look what God did. Look at the depths of the richness of God's grace and his mercy. Isn't it amazing, Ashley, that God can even take our sins and bring glory to himself through them? It says that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace, come on, you can say it with me. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. People usually stop there, but I never do. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has ordained that we should do. Do you know the good works that you do are works that God's ordained that you would do before you ever even called His name? Wow.
We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. Next week I'm going to talk about unity. And Christ prayed for them that were His that they would be one as He is one. And if there's anything to rally our unity around, it is the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. That when any of us does a good work, when I go to Myanmar and do a good work, when Steve raises money and we do a good work, when, when Laura is a good mom or Luke is a good dad, when, you, when your family brags on you and says, what a beautiful family you have, Heath, you can go, oh, God's good. His great love. He loved me not only to save me, but to let me live right now in this life. Being a good dad, if I'm a good dad, it's only him that taught me. It's only him that's made me to love the people of my church. It's only him that has made me to want to reach out to my neighbors and, and reach out to people and share the good things that God has given me. Only in his mercy have I ever done any good or thought any good or will ever be seated in heavenly places, not by deeds which I have done, but by his deeds. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we can look at this in a static way, a, a way that is removed from us, and we can be cerebral about it, O oh God, or we can let this pour deep into our hearts. Lord, we can let it extinguish the, the fires of accusation that come from the devil, the, 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 the destructing, discouraging words that come into our heart when we sin and we feel so far away from You. God, you're not going to leave us. You're not going to forsake us. You're going to keep us by your power. You're going to call us to heaven. You're going to forget and forgive our sins and remove them from us, never to blame us or remind us of them. Oh, what riches in your grace, oh God. Lord, may we bathe in it today and appreciate it today. May it cause us to be kind and loving. May it cause us to go out into the highways and the byways and compel people to come into your house that your house might be full. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.